HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant. Learn more at KermitLynch.com. This week on Meet and 3, we celebrate Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month with an episode about memory. I've always read and sort of approached cookbooks for more than the recipes. To me, they are full of narrative content and narrative value. So malama'aina basically means to take care of the land. For us as Hawaiians, it's taking care of our older sibling. But I do remember like definitely feeling like self-conscious about it, like being the only one who kind of wasn't eating a sandwich and like didn't have a bag of goldfish or Lunchables. Listen to Meet and 3 wherever you get your podcasts. To the Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Eric Asimov. We'll talk to Eric about the past, the present, and the future. I know that sounds vague, but there's a lot in there. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Eric Asimov is the chief wine critic for the New York Times. His tenure with the newspaper goes back to 1984. His column on wine appears Wednesdays in the food section of the Times. His monthly wine school column enlightens and invites you to drink and discuss wine with him. He has published numerous books and guides, including How to Love Wine, a memoir and a manifesto. Eric is a prolific tweeter and a fellow New York Jets fan, I'm happy to say. Welcome to the Grape Nation, Eric. Welcome back to the Grape Nation. Thank you. Go Jets. That's right. New era. <laughs> Let's not get too exuberant. We could talk about it at the end. All right. We're talking to Eric remotely via Zencaster. Um, Eric, where are you? I'm in my apartment in Manhattan, where I've been and- most of the last 15 months. Okay, so as you worked, you know, for the Times this past year and a half or whatever, you've been doing it out of your apartment, pretty much haven't left, right? Up until recently, maybe? 
Yeah, um, I mean, I, you know, I, I've not been a hermit, <laughs> but, um, right. you know, I haven't basically left the city. Um, just I, I've been in, in the apartment, working in the apartment. Um, you know, it's been like everybody else in the pandemic. Yep. There's a lot of adjustments. Yep. Um, you know, I've been talking about every aspect of the pandemic for the past year with basically all my guests, you know, hard not to escape it. Um, you know, I'm hoping now that the pandemic is winding down and maybe it won't be so much top of mind. Um, and I want to discuss the effects of the pandemic. So I want to get right into it with you. Um, you just said that you've been in Manhattan, you've been in your apartment and you've been working. You publish a weekly column with the Times. How did the pandemic change your life other than that physical aspect that you weren't in the office? Um, well, first of all, I had to cancel, you know, a, a lot of trips that I had planned to take, um, some of which I had already bought plane tickets for right and um you know along with those trips are are quite a few articles that i had planned to write um which you know was impossible but right you know you have you you adjust um when when current events brings you a different set of circumstances it it changes one's beat as well and obviously it changed the, the kinds of stories that, that I had planned to write. And I ended up instead writing about how the pandemic was affecting uh, the wine business, uh, trying to figure out articles that would address the concerns of readers, like uh, early on when it all seemed, you know, in New York City that we, we would be uh, quite isolated for a while. I, I wrote about the issue of drinking alone right. and, and how our society views that and, and maybe how people could uh, safely do that. Right. Um, so, so there's, yeah, there's a lot, a lot of different approaches you have to take. So, so I, we can all understand this on a <clears throat> typical year. I mean, your column is affected by travel, among other things. You get an opportunity, you know, abroad and here to visit, yeah. taste, see people. Um, how many trips, you know, on average, you know, would you typically take in a year? Um, well, last year, I probably would have gone to Europe at least three times. Wow. Um, I, I would have been on the West Coast uh, several times, um, including uh, right around or after the, the fires uh, that hit Napa. Right. Um, right. And, um, and, and other than that, you know, you, things happen and you don't necessarily know in advance uh, that that a trip is is suddenly right. um, going to be likely. Right. So, you know, all, all of those are, are kind of the basic um, nuts and bolts of, of writing about wine. It's, it, there's nothing like visiting the, the place and seeing the people and, you know, inhaling the, the air in vineyards and, and just sensing the, the cultural vibe that might uh, 
that goes into producing a, a, a certain wine. And, and th these things happen as news happens. You know, something might occur to me and, and, and a great story suggests itself. Um, right. I, I think I've got a backlog now of those stories and I'm, I'm hoping to catch up in the next couple of years. Yeah. I mean, you, you hit it. It's probably going to take years. <laughs> when did you realize, like, I think mid late February, you know, there were stories in the news and then March, it started ramping up. And by the middle end of March, you know, it right, was here. Yeah. When did, um, when did, you know, when did it change and you were looking down the barrel of a gun where you had something planned and like you said now you had to improvise and come up with a different story or a story that wouldn't be based on travel when did you realize all this well i it was you know right at the beginning of march i had um there were a couple of things that i had done i think that I last saw you at the 2020 Charleston uh, Wine and Food Festival, which Eric, we which, we were there right before the shit hit the fan. Right before the shit hit the fan, and I came back from that and went directly to a, you know, a huge uh, dinner at La Palais, uh, which was right. celebrating its 20th year in in New York, and you know that at, at that event. Um, I, I really hit me that all of these people were gathered together and none of them were following the, um, the protocols that were just beginning to, to, to come out there. You know, people were hugging and, right. and tasting from each other's glasses and, right. and singing and, um, right. you know, all, all of the earmarks <laughs> of a super spreader event were there. And, you know, thank God that uh, very few people... <laughs> There, as as I understand it, got sick and and but almost immediately after that, uh, at the end of March, I was supposed to fly to um, Milan and spend two weeks in 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 Piemonte, and of course that quickly became an epicenter, just as New York did. So so that was off, and you know from there we just. First, you thought, oh, we'll put it off three weeks, and it's a couple of right. months, and then, you know, it, it kind of roll, rolled into something nobody expected. Yeah. Um, the Pomonte trip, you missed the 15s and the 16s, probably, which have been amazing, right? That would yeah, have been a heck um, of a time. And you even know, later. And I, I had a, a couple of good stories I wanted to do, and, and I hope they'll, they'll still be available to me. I'm sure um, um, that that that's like a high class problem having too much material. <laughs> but you, know, right? <laughs> you know what really bummed me out? Um, I was supposed to go to Tulsa, Oklahoma in in July for uh, to give a talk on wine there, and I was right. going to get a, a guided private guided tour of the Bob Dylan Center. Um, oh. and, and of course that was out and I'm so unhappy about that. Didn't you, um, didn't you tweet a Bob Dylan, uh, Charlie Brown cartoon today? Was that you? 
I I retweeted it. Yeah, retweeted. You know, yes, yes. Yeah. Or um, Monday was his 80th birthday. Right, right, right. Um, yeah, those are the things on top of the wine. Um, and it's funny <laughs> you, you were you, you were alluding earlier, you know, about seeing the people and everything. You know, it, it just proves, and you know this better than anyone else, that wine is a lot more than a liquid in a glass. Yeah, and I mean, and I, I've so always... much wrapped around it. Yeah, I've always approached right. it that way, and that's you know why it's uh, I, I I've never wanted to just do my job from a from a desk because then you you can't absorb all of uh, all, all of the other the cultural elements that go into wine. You know, it's just it's right. It's it's far beyond just a beverage. Can you? I think I've discussed this with you, but I don't mind doing it again for my listeners. Um, there are a lot of people out there that review wines and rate them. And, you know, that's a whole nother show you and I could do is, you know, wine ratings and all of that. Your <clears throat> your job is, you know, not to, you know, rate wines or whatever. Um, I, I, I mean, the elevator pitch of of how you approach this you know is what is that a fair question eric uh, i think that's a fair question it's you know it's not a short answer but uh if i were trying to boil it down i would just say that um wine yes it's a it's a beverage and it can, and it gives a lot of pleasure and it's got a start there but it can be so much more than that and when you go when you go into it and look at the traditions of wine, um, particularly in in the old world where you know uh, these traditions go back generations, if not centuries, and you know you look at what wines can tell you about the people, and you begin to see them as as expressions of a, a particular group of people or culture just as their their music their dance their food right. is and it it becomes much more resonant uh, to me and of course it's also you know wine is history it's politics it's economics um you know it's 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 competition it's health all of these elements are are part of wine, um, and and you know, and, and of course, there's the um, evaluation of it as as an aesthetic object, right? And you, you know, your role is not to, but the evaluation is not, you know, numerical or whatever. I mean, it's no, a bigger um, story than that, that. That's, you know, people don't turn to you for I mean, that. Obviously, they, there's, you know, there's good quality and not so good quality. And, um, you know, a lot of culture wars are, are fought in wine over these issues. How do you assess that? What should right. standards be? And, and and so on. And I, I don't shrink from that, but I, I don't believe in, you know, the, the long, uh, the, the kind of mark of the critic as uh, assessing individual bottles. I think that's right. just a method of creating a dependency, uh, uh, for consumers on critics. And I, and I get the, uh, imperative when you're working for a, uh, 
you know, a, a wine, a, a wine publication, but I have the luxury of, of working for a general interest publication and people right. might come to me for, for other reasons. Right. Which is all good. Um, back to the pandemic. Yeah. I, I mean, we, we, let's talk about the significant effects the pandemic had on the wine industry. Um, I think that goes, you know, crosses restaurants, consumers, retailers, you know, people, people in, you know, the profession, people's wine habits. I mean, did you get any feel that people's preferences and habits changed during the uh, pandemic? Were they drinking more or less? How were they doing it? They weren't in restaurants? Um, well, I think they're, they're drinking differently. And, and, of course, it's important to understand that, um, you know, the pandemic affected people, different people differently. Right. If you are, you know, in the upper income brackets, um, you know, chances are you did pretty well during the pandemic. And if you're not, if you're in a, a service job or in the arts or, you know, any other uh, sort of job that depended on interacting with the public regularly, um, you may not have uh, have done so well. And, and of course, that very much affects uh, people's drinking habits. Um, restaurants, as I see it, and, and for, um, you know, the the section of the wine industry that I'm interested in, interested in restaurants play a crucial role, both in, 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 um, particularly in introducing people to new and different wines and in, uh, communicating, educating, and persuading people to, to try them. And when you take restaurants and sommeliers out of the equation, people are kind of left more on, on their own and, and tend not to be as exploratory and fall back on, on things that they know that they like. So, well, yeah. Also, also it, it, retailers, you know, at the same point, <laughs> restaurants were either shut down or, you know, doing takeout. Retailers yes. were closed and they were doing takeout. I, I mean, right. selling curbside. So the exploration of, you know, going in a store and talking to the owner was gone. So yes, did, that, did that create a shift to online and DTC? Oh, absolutely. Um, Is that good or bad? I, I think, uh, well, I mean... I think that's good in the sense that, um, you know, it allowed many small wine producers, American wine producers to survive because, you know, their the business plan for many of them is to sell um, directly to restaurants and, and, uh, and, and their products move through that, um, through through those businesses with uh, the help of sommeliers. Uh, these are right. all hand sell products. Uh, and that's true in retail also. And, you know, when you don't have that interface, that human interface, um, uh, you, you know, you're, you're, something is, the equation has to change. And a lot of, I was surprised at a lot of uh, American wineries uh, that were able to pivot quickly to um, direct-to-consumer sales and just sort of 
build their uh, their websites and their and and their DTC sales on the fly. That that was really impressive. Um, you did a you did a story um, discussing that, and a good chunk of the people in the story, if not all of them, made the pivot and did did okay, survived, did well, right? Yeah, I, I mean, I talked to a lot of. Uh, these people at the beginning of the pandemic and they were sort of in panic mode at the time. Right. And then, you know, speaking to them, to them a year later, uh, they were themselves kind of surprised at how, how well they did. Um, of course, there were other problems, you know, came up for the American wine industry that had nothing to do with the pandemic that in fact were were far greater threats to their businesses than the pandemic than the pandemic turned out to be that would be climate change well yeah in the in you know uh at base climate change but in particular the fires and and what that did to their uh their well yeah i meant yes yeah Let's talk about that in a minute. I, I want to just finish up on the pan- pandemic thing, because mm-hmm. categorically, I kind of want to jump into that, um, yes. focused on that. Um, <clears throat> will rest. So wait, a couple things. So um, wineries pivoted to direct to consumer. In the end, do you think there'll be a net game, t- net gain to DTC? Um, buyers or, you know, will it fall off? I mean, to me, it sounds like a good thing for the long run. What do you think? Um, I, I don't think it will fall off. I think, um, you know, the, the old model for, um, for wineries with, you know, frequent um, trips to the, their big markets and, um, you know, a lot of in-person kind of thing, uh, I, I think they've learned that that's not necessary or at least not necessary to the extent that they were doing it before. Maybe instead of, you know, taking three trips a year to New York, you might take one um, and, and just plan on a, a lot more online promotion. Um, the bigger question, I think, is, you know, how are restaurants going to respond? You know, if you remember, a lot of restaurants sold off um, Quite a bit of their inventory just to, to you know pay their bills. Um, a lot of them let go their their wine specialists. Uh, we don't know if they're going to be uh, back. I think you know the sense I get is that in uh, high end restaurants um, are always going to have a, a huge you know a first rate wine inventory and to have, um, you know, dedicated staff to, to, to buy and sell those wines. It's the, the mid-level restaurants that we just, we don't really know about. Um, and, and the other thing is that, you know, the, the business model of American restaurants was, was really exposed, um, you know, it's it's incredibly fragile. Um, people are employees are basically wa- walking a, a tightrope. You know, especially those that don't have uh, health benefits, and you know, r- restaurants that are are just staying barely staying ahead with rent and things like that. And who knows if if um, you know if if Manhattan rents 
don't change, for example, whether the restaurant industry comes back to the extent that it had existed. I think eventually it will because big cities thrive on, on having vibrant restaurant cultures, but it may take five years, you know? Right. It, it could be set back that long. I mean, that, that, that's not unrealistic, right? And that's, um, uh, that's true. And one uh, sommelier who I think is, is very smart, smart was speculating to me that, um, you know, in the future, wine destinations might well be outside of the big cities because it's simply easier to pay for, for rent and for wine storage there. You know, except for the right. the, the most uh, high, the highest end restaurants, wine storage in in Manhattan is it's crazy, is incredibly difficult logistically. So um, that that yeah, that points to two things. Um, and tell me and expand. Um, I, I think because of that, you're probably the restaurants that do come back are probably going to have smaller and more curated lists. And I think the idea and, and, you know, you and I know a handful of restaurants that are, you know, big and fancy and small and cool that have three, four five psalms working the floor. I don't think the psalm thing is, you know, mm -hmm. there's, I think a lot of people are going to flee the industry and I don't think restaurants are going to be able to afford them. Do you agree with the curated list, smaller, and, and some sort of leaving? I, I do think that's the direction we're heading, or, or if um, uh, psalms are not leaving entirely, they're going to be asked to do other jobs as well, which, um, you know, really um, the, the best sommeliers were, you know, were completely integrated into their restaurants and would just as soon bus a table as, um, you know, uh, or uh, as sell wine because that's what good service people do. So, it, you know, it might weed out um, people who were more interested in, you know, the fame of the sommelier rather than right. the, um, the hospitality aspects of the job. Right. Right. Um, but, so you know, one other thing to, is uh, that a lot of people in the restaurant industry have um, said to me is that they fear that consumers will have gotten so used to play, paying retail costs for wine that they will not be willing to go back to restaurant costs. So that'll bite into the, uh, you know, profits and... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it may be that, um, you know, restaurants will have to find a different way rather than, you know, making um, wine their sole profit center. It may be that there's a whole uh, new reckoning about how uh, restaurant pricing is done, not just of wine, but of food. Right. And, um, you know, I think we saw a little bit of that. Um, when Danny Meyer tried to eliminate tips in his restaurants and, right. and we saw quite a bit of consumer resistance. So, I mean, we'll, we'll see what happens. Yeah. So I, I think in order for restaurants to come back, there's going to have to be some reinvention and, you know, you noted a bunch of, you know, things that will have to be addressed, you know, the wine pricing, 
you know, the change in personnel. Psalms are just not going to be these rock stars walking on the floor. They're going to have to run tables back to the kitchen. Um, you know, getting employees back has been difficult. Um, so we'll see what happens with that. Um, all right. I want to jump to, we definitely could do hours on the pandemic. Um, I want to jump to something that also has grabbed the headlines, um, the past year, but may have been overshadowed. You know, 2021 started with a terrible frost in France and Italy. Yes. And the summer, I mean, Eric, we're almost in June already, and the dry season is approaching in the western, you know, U.S., where they've faced fires virtually every year. Um, unlike the pandemic, you can't create a vaccine to fight, you know, climate change, to fight the fires, to fight frost. Yes. Um, has, has climate change, in a way, been even more disruptive than the pandemic? Um, absolutely. I think How? that, you know, people are able to to adapt to the pandemic. Uh, adapting to climate change is way more difficult. And, you know, if you think of California this year, um, I mean, they're in a they're in a drought emergency and, right. you know, they're uh, they're They already are are lacking water. It's already been declared fire season in many parts of the state, and that's way early. And, you know, this is kind of the, the new normal. A lot of people said we're not dealing with climate change anymore. We're dealing with climate emergency. Right. And, um, you know, I think that it's it's a lot bigger than, than the wine industry, obviously. Yes. Um, Agriculture. And, I mean, even agriculture, it's a it's a public uh, health emergency. It's a pub, you know, it's a it's a it's a public emergency on every level. And unless, you know, serious steps are, are taken, um, I mean, I don't, it's hard to feel optimistic uh, about, you know, one one thing that was interesting was then when um uh, during the pandemic, when there was kind of a cessation of of travel and and right um, and everything, you you saw in the a lot air of ways cleared how, up. How the, the air cleared up, the the water cleared up. I mean, nation, <laughs> nature has a way of of being able to bounce back. And but I would hate for anybody to feel you know so uh, sanguine about that that they they you know, felt, oh, we don't have to act on an emergency basis now. And, you know, really, uh, I mean, the wine industry is, is, is always the canary in the coal mine here. And um, what's happening with the fraud, the, the, you know, deeply destructive frosts in, in Europe and, you know, the, the even more destructive fires in, in, on the West Coast, it, it, it's... You know, it just you wonder, like, at what point does it become untenable for for people? Well, it's it's untenable. It's not untenable for some people, obviously, because people don't give a crap. You know, I guess it it falls into the governments of each country and it requires a massive effort. Right. I mean, it's just a global 
I mean, clearly it's not just, I mean, it can't be approached on an individual basis. It has to be approached, uh, um, you know, on a global basis. And just, you know, given the politics of getting anything done in the United States, you know, much less India or, or China, um, you know, you, you just, you just have to hope against hope that, that, right. uh, people will, will realize that they have to overcome whatever their, their short-term interests are to, to get this together. That's going to be difficult. I mean, if you micromanage this, if you take California, you know, which has been fire ridden, I mean, is there anything, you know, individual wine wineries and the people that farm them, you know, does moving towards sustainability, you know, cover crops, more diversity? I mean, does that help at a micro level or? Well, I, you know, I think we all have to, um, you know, do our part regardless of, of right. what happens at the government. You know, you can't be fatalistic about it. And. You know, I I think there there are elements of, of wine that that really have to be rethought. Um, it's it might surprise people to know that the you know single biggest generator of carbon in the wine industry uh, is glass bottles and and uh, shipping glass bottles around the world. And is it is it the shipping? And the well, manufacturing it's, it's, or the shipping? It's both. It's both. both. Okay. And, wow. you know, there are easy uh, things that can be done there. Uh, for example, you know, people can, uh, wineries can can uh, use bottles that are, are not nearly as massive as, right. you know, some of the luxury <laughs> bottles that you see. Right. And right. Uh, uh, that's not hard. Jancis Robinson in her, on, on her website has started, um, you know, citing the weight of, of bottles in her wine ratings and, and that's calling, out, calling out producers who get above a, a certain weight. And you know what? It's, it's not just, um, you know, uh, Napa Cabernet or Bordeaux. I was going to ask lot, you that. A lot of natural wine producers are are just as big offenders as as the you know the luxury goods and corporate right. wine producers. So I mean that's one thing that that needs to change. But then also you know think about the the shipping. Um, right. Uh, certainly you know we all. We all know that uh, a lot of inexpensive wine is is made from bulk wine, which is which is shipped around the world, not in 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 individual glass bottles, but in big tanks and, right. and then bottled uh, close to where it's sold, closer to where it's sold. And it may be that that has to be extended to. Um, to other sorts of wines, and and you know there are a lot of obstacles to that. For example, um, appellation. A lot of uh, appellation wines are required if they want the appellation to be bottled within the boundaries of that appellation, and right. and maybe that has to change. And some other, you know, you have to. One of the reasons for such rules is is to prevent fraud. Right. Um, but now in, in an era of climate change, maybe we have to, to rethink both how we can prevent 
fraud and 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 how we can ship wine more um, more sustainably around the world. I think um, there's always going to be resistance to change, but I think you're right. Inevitably, you know, the change is going to have to come, yeah. you know, along with other bigger things. Yes, um, and, and, and of course, as you mentioned, agriculture is a, a big part of it here. And, um, you know, a, a lot of people will have, will, will ha- there's some very complex d- decisions that have to be made. You know, yeah. people for centuries have traditionally tilled the soil, um, and that's right. maybe not a good thing for for it releases a lot in, a lot of carbon that otherwise would be stored in the soil. So people have to think about be open to thinking about no till agriculture and, and right. you know uh, various other uh, alterations yeah. into what they've long uh- done. A more biodiverse environment, possibly, you know, not just this well manicured row of, you know, vines. It may have to be. That too. Yeah. Um, Eric, we have to take a quick break. Um, We're talking to Eric Asimov. Eric Asimov writes for Wine for the New York Times. Uh, When we come back, we're going to get into a bunch of other things. You're listening to The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. This episode is brought to you by Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant, an importer, retailer, and wholesaler of fine wine from France and Italy, headquartered in Berkeley, California. In 1972, Kermit Lynch opened a retail shop in Berkeley, California with a $5,000 loan and a bit of gumption. He started with just 35 cases of wine stacked on the floor. Kermit grew his business from a retailer into a wholesaler and a national importer of wines from France and Italy. These wines are produced by small family growers who are committed to the old world traditions and culture. It is Kermit's belief that great wine is made in the vineyard, not the cellar. Much like his close friends, the late food writer Richard Olney and Chez Panisse's founder Alice Waters, Kermit's influence has been enduring. He has spent nearly half a century shining the spotlight on small artisan producers. Learn more at KermitLynch.com. K-E-R-M-I-T-L-Y-N-C-H.com. We're back. We're back with my guest, Eric Asimov. Um... Eric, <laughs> there's so many contentious issues, but you know, and I'm doing a wine podcast here, so I want to talk a little about wine too. Um, you've always been a proponent and a cheerleader for quality to value wines. I mean, I know this firsthand from reading your columns forever. Um, you annually recommend wines, you know, for 20 bucks and under. And the diversity and depth of these wines is incredible. It's just a great guide to go by. Um, is that price range, like the 20 bucks, is that the sweet spot for the majority of consumers? Is that why you do it? Um, I mean, well, is that, you know, is that where I, good wine starts? I mean, I know you've discussed this, you know, the difference between a $10 bottle. But is that the sweet, you know, t- t- talk to me about that. 
Yeah, I would say the sweet spot is is fifteen to twenty five dollars. Um, so I've always, you know, just picked arbitrarily twenty dollars and done you know several columns of year twenty bottles that I recommend all under twenty dollars. Um, you know, is that the sweet spot for consumers? Well, if you read my email, I, I get an awful lot of people who complain that they don't want to spend that much. But, right. <laughs> you know, I'm, uh, my argument is that, yeah, if you want to spend $10, fine. But you just you don't have that many options at, at $10 where you have a lot of options, 15 to, to 25 Dollars, um, but but fair it, to say, option of decent wines. I mean, there's a lot of wines yes, that we're talking I mean, only uh, decent wines, right? Well, good wine. You know what do what do we mean by that? Um, you know, for a lot of people, uh, a lot of people are just, you know, they're looking for essentially an alcohol delivery system, right. and they just uh, they want it they want it to taste good to them, and and you know, not be offensive and they want to spend five to $10 and that's fine. But that's not, those are not the people who I'm writing for. Um, my, my imaginary audience is, is interested in, in more than that. They're interested in, um, in wines that, as I said before, are expressions of culture, are products of, of tradition, um, that, uh, are, uh, do have a sense of place, are made, um, you know, in, in, in a, uh, 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 in a, you know, with, with craft, craftsmanship rather right. than um, uh, mass produced. And when you're getting to the $10 and lower range, then you're talking about economies of scale and a lot of mass production and, you know, a lot of grapes from from places that maybe are not uh, really very expressive when it comes to wine. Um, you're, you're just talking about a, uh, you know, the equivalent of soft drinks then. Right. And, right. and for I'm not telling people if, if they enjoy those wines, that's fine. But I'm I'm recommending uh, I'm aiming higher in my mind and, and writing about wines for people who, who want to go there with me. Right. Um, which is also the wine school, too. Um, well, I wine school is a slightly different thing. But, you know, the idea with that price range is that there's still a, a really wide range of, of wines that are, um, you know, made with uh, craftsmanship that do have a sense of place that are expressions of, of culture. You know, you're not going to get uh, burgundies there or, or Napa Cabernets, but you're going to you have access to a lot of different and unusual wines from around the world that are kind of, um, you know, the, the mark of our current per period in wine history, the fact that we have access to to this incredible range of different wines that we never saw before. So let, let's talk about that, because um, my l listeners love Recos. So we talked about the fact that you haven't been able to travel because of the pandemic. So here's a multi-pronged question, and I'll keep you focused on it. When <laughs> will you commence travel to support your writing? And then 
you know, where are you going? But tie that into tell me some regions and winemakers that have been catching your attention and interest, you know, within the $20 and the beyond the $20 thing, you know, so we're not boxed in, you know, to that one thing. I yeah, think I if mean, you. I, I'm let's, let's get away from the, the $20. OK. Because, yep. You know, because I'm still talking about value wines really at, at most levels that I'm writing about. And so, um, you know, in the last year, uh, the wines of Greece have, have grabbed me, and, and particularly the red wines of, of, of Greece, because we're, you know, I, I won't say we're completely familiar with white wines from Greece, but we know right. them better than, than the red wines. And there's just some terrific wines of all sorts coming from, um, from, from Greece, Germany is, too. Uh, wait, go Germany, back to Greece. Go yes. back to Greece for a second. On the reds, are we talking about a bunch of different grapes? Like when you talk Burgundy, you're talking Pinot. When you talk Greece, yes. are you talking three, four, you know, different varieties? We're talking about grapes that that most of us, including me, know not very little about. <laughs> okay. You know, maybe maybe the the most famous red grape from uh, Greece is Zinomavro, which okay, is, right. is really good, and it's kind of it, it's a little bit reminiscent of Nebbiolo with, you know, maybe with some Syrah, but I don't want to play that up too much. It's its, its own thing. And there's some terrific Xenomavro uh, um, wines, and they, they are probably, the, you know, the most promising in terms of, of ageability and developing uh, complexity over time, but there are a lot of other uh, reds coming from from Greece too, and as well as a lot of interesting whites. And you know, I'm, I'm always counseling people just to be open to these things. That's the biggest thing. You had mentioned Germany, so continue. Yeah, Germany too. You know, Germany has wonderful Rieslings, but there's so much beyond Riesling as well. Um, you know, not just uh, uh, Pinot Noir, uh, but there's, uh, you know, there, there's a, a, a growing natural wine scene, both in Germany and in Greece. Um, there are uh, uh, Trollinger, for example, uh, known as Schiava in, in northeastern right. Italy. That's a, a, a lovely red wine. Um, and there's all, all kinds of other um, kind of ancient uh, grapes like Elbling, which can be is a very interesting white. And, and uh, you know, you have spell, spell Elbling. Elbling. Uh, it, e -L? I, it's E-L-B-L-I-N-G. OK, just want to make or sure. Or it could be Elbling. <laughs> no, I think okay. it's Elbling. Yeah, I, 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 right. I get confused without my um, without my reference books in front of me all the time. Um, there's now is, uh, is, um, is Sylvaner, there a, for example, uh, is right. another grape that we kind of dismiss, but it's it can be wonderful. Right. Um, is there? You know, those are Greece is less well known and established than Germany. But your point well, with they, Germany is it, yeah. it goes beyond Riesling. Are there right. any regions that, you know, we know about that, you know, I wouldn't say a renaissance, but you're just excited again about the wines. Like Psalms have been talking about Chianti, you know, when they well, haven't I, been for I 10. talk about Chianti all the time. And I, in fact, I'm 
I have an, uh, another article upcoming on Chianti. Um, and what's, so tell and, me a little about that. Well, I, you know, Sangiovese is one of my favorite grapes. I just love it and it can be so good. And I have, I, I found um, over time that uh, I, I'm currently just so crazy about Chianti Classico and the, um, the, these wines have never been better than they are now. There's a whole um, range of, of great producers there and, and uh, I think they're just really um, hitting their stride and, and uh, I'm talking about the, mostly about the normale ba uh, bottlings, so just Chianti Classico, not Reserva, not the Gran Selezione, right. which are the higher end expressions, but just plain Chianti Classico. They're so good and so interesting and so um, expressive. And, you know, I, I like other expressions of Sangiovese. I love uh, Brunello and I, I love uh, Vino Nobile and right. uh, Sangiovese from um, uh, other, other parts of, of Italy. But really Chianti Classico has just grabbed my attention in, in a big way. And... Um, there are, some of those wines are getting a little bit more expensive, but a lot of really good ones are still in the the twenty to thirty dollar range and are terrific. That show really well, you know. That really yes. are good food whites too. Um, silly question: Back against the wall, do you pick Nebbiolo over Sangiovese or Sangiovese over Nebbiolo? Or there's a love, or that's like saying who's your favorite kid. Yeah, I mean, I I love them both, but um, right right now I find my uh, attention focused more on Sangiovese than than Nebbiolo. These things change, though, you know. Yeah, that's, um, I mean, that's it, good. It, uh, and you know, let's let, but let's go beyond uh, Sangiovese. Let's just stipulate that that Nebbiolo is is just a brilliant grape. But what about Dolcetto, for example? Yes. That's yes. another one that gets, um, you know, easily dismissed uh, and, you know, nobody really wants to, to talk about it. But Dolcetto is a, a wonderful grape and there's so many excellent expressions right now of, of Dolcetto that are really reasonably priced. Right. I was just going to say similar to Chianti. You know, compared to the Barolos, even Barbarescos, they're reasonably priced and they're terrific. Um, I'm glad you brought that up because um, those are some, uh, I mean, Italy is so vast, but those are some, you know, uh, well-known opportunities. Um, and, and, you know, I've also been um, really getting into uh, Italian whites um, and like, and, uh, like um, well, and I was going to mention another region, uh, Montepulciano and the Montepulciano d'Abruzzo, which, um, yes. you know, the, this area is very well-priced wines. There used to be, um, you know, mostly big companies that, and, and the wines weren't that interesting, but I, I've noticed in the last decade that, you know, a lot of younger producers are going in there and just making beautiful wines. And the white, uh, Trebbiano, Trebbi, uh, Trebbiano d'Abruzzo, um, is and terrific. he's so good and you know it's important to distinguish that particular um 
grape, Trebbiano d'Abruzzo, from the vast number of other Trebbianos in, in Italy that are, in fact, different grapes. The, the actual um, uh, Trebbiano d'Abruzzo grape is just um, wonderful and makes really fascinating wines. Yeah, and there's some terrific makers. Um, Eric, a couple things. I do a thing called the wine list, which you've done before. I want to do it with you. I ask my guests five questions about their preferences. They're the same questions I asked you the last time. Well, it's Not a good thing Charleston. I don't remember. <laughs> yeah, you won't. No, and, and things <laughs> things change, too. So, you know, I yes. want to see that. I'll actually do a comparison. But before I get into that, I just, I'm curious, um, have you had that meal outside of the house you know sort of post-pandemic you know yes. have you done that yet what was the, did you order wine you know what was yes it? I, well i never stopped going i i ate uh, outdoors all summer and into okay. the fall at restaurants um and i i kind of step back during the winter because I don't need to go to a restaurant bad, no. badly enough to be freezing <laughs> or right. sitting in one of those, you know, ridiculous enclosed shelters that are, that are an ex a poor excuse for eating outside. Yeah. Um, but I, I did you know, it once. I'm, I'm completely vaccinated and, uh, have been, going, so, have been back in restaurants and, and, cause and, I actually bump into people that, Oh, I just went out for the first time. I wanted to make sure that, you know, that wasn't you. Good. <laughs> Right. No, but I did have like a, a return to restaurant meal. Um, I guess it was in uh, the beginning of April. Um, that was kind of a celebration, both of, of vaccination. And I had just gotten over COVID then myself. I, I had it in this. Uh, this past April? The, I got it at the end of February 2021. Wow. I got um, it in 20, in March yeah. 20. So I. So what did you uh, drink? Do you remember? I don't remember. Okay, that's okay. That's <laughs> okay. Whatever was, I mean, there's some. It didn't matter, oh, right? Yeah, I, I, there were some great um, wines at that restaurant. I do remember going to um, Ernesto's and getting having some great Spanish whites, and that's Downtown. another thing I've been yeah. uh, fascinated with uh, recently. Uh, are uh, unfortified Palomino wines from from the Jerez region of of Spain, sherry country, made with the sherry grape, but that are not fortified. And this is a whole new kind of um, uh, uh, field for me that, or I've had them before, but there's just a bunch of really good ones right now that uh, have been fascinating to me. So this is Palomino, you're saying? Yes, that's the great. Okay. Right. All right. Um, and is, I, this is an area I'm not, you know, well-versed on. Is Palomino a sherry or it's not a sherry? No, that's, that's the name of the grape um, that you see in, in sherry. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. So that's, that's what you're drinking. All right. Um, Maybe we'll talk about that in the wine list. So here's the wine list. Five questions. Don't dwell on the answers. You know, buzz through them. You can give me one answer, a couple answers. The first question is, what are you drinking now? You sort of answered that. And the question <laughs> is usually, what's in your fridge? What are you trying? Yeah. You, you know, we, I, well, you, you, I'm in the middle of my Chianti Classico. Sorry, so so that's one. A lot of Chianti Classico. 
That's one I was going to say. You know, you sort of answered the question. You have this Palomino, you know, thing. This Palomino, yeah, I'm I'm exploring that as well. What else? um, Well, I always have a lot of uh, Chablis around. um, Okay. And especially in the summer, um, uh, Italian whites. I I mentioned the uh, Trebbiano. What else? Italian whites? Like Vermentino? I mean, what else do you like? Um... Uh, Verdicchio, um, Fiano, Suave, okay. uh, Gavi. There's there's so many good ones. Um, there is Etna Bianco. Etna Bianco, fantastic. All right, um, those are good ones. Yeah. All right, so this this would be a good question to compare the, when we did it years ago to now. It's the goofiest question on the list, but. Do you have a favorite wine and food pairing? Certainly not something you eat every month, every week, but something, not what you think is a good wine pairing, wine and food pairing, but something that you love, you know, something that just works for you. Could be simple as steak and Cabernet or it could be something crazy. Well, I'm actually loving steak and Chianti Classic. <laughs> okay. But, um, yes, uh, uh, um, crab cakes and white burgundy. Are, are a great combination. That, you answered the question. I'm going to put down steak and Chianti Classico because I think you're dead on on that. And crab cakes and white burgundy is a pretty good answer too. I like that one. Um, I don't remember. I asked I this have question. One, one other um, Go ahead. Uh, wine that I should mention in, in terms of, of uh, Italian whites, um, Aligote from Burgundy is a terrific substitute and goes with a lot of the dishes that you'd want an Italian white for, whether pesto or uh, linguine with clams or or, um, dishes like that. It's got a little body to hold up yeah. against those foods. And, of yeah. course, this is, is summer. You know, if, if the weather would be cool were a little cooler, I'd be roasting chickens and, and drinking it with uh, northern Rhone uh, wines, Saint Joseph yep. or Cornas. You're among my favorite wines. We we kicked mm. this year off with Jean Gonan, who really doesn't do a lot of interviews, and it was terrific ah, to have him on. He's, yeah, he he's a great. great guy. He makes incredible wine. I got to taste on the show with him. You know, we talked about his wines. That was fun. All right, third question, and. If if this is awkward or it feels like you know you're excluding things, but favorite wine restaurant and or bar, and it's only in the context of who serves great wine, who has a great vibe, who's got a good wine list, who's got people that are knowledgeable. You know, it doesn't have to be fancy. Like I said, it could be a bar. Does anything come to mind? Yeah, I I mean I'm not really so into. Um fancy restaurants right now but yes the one restaurant that comes to mind immediately is king um in in soha i love that restaurant all around food annie's wines you know everything the vibe they're very good about it um there's a nice you know curated wine list all right fourth question the question is favorite all-time wine I think when I first asked you this question, I think what I was going for was, Eric, what was the most expensive rare wine you ever drank? The question has morphed into, I don't give a crap to that answer. The question is, Eric, 
favorite all-time wine. What's that important wine to you? You know, what's the wine that changed the way you think about wine or had an impression or turned you on to Burgundy? Is there an important wine, you know, that's significant to you? Well, I mean, or you know, the, wines. Thing, the thing is that, um, and I, I have fought this question because I don't think that one just has a single epiphany. Um, I agree. I, I've had many wine epiphanies, and you know, I can see epiphanies. The answer. I, I'm, the epiphany is more important than the wine to me. Yeah, I, I can name the first wine epiphany I had, and it was a a '78 Barbera d'Alba from Giacomo Conterno, which back when I drank it in 1982 was like a an eight dollar bottle and is now probably <laughs> like an eighty dollar bottle. Right. I can talk about the you know a 1955 La Mission, um, which was the first great older wine I had ever had on my. Uh, I bought it for my parents' thirtieth wedding anniversary in 1985, and, and that, I was that's close to a birth year too, right? Uh, well, it's a little older than I am. I'm happy to say, <laughs> okay. but um, I'm uh, I can talk about the first uh, red Burgundy that I remember, which was a a modest wine, uh, uh, Haute Cote de Nuit, that just I, I blew me away. I can talk about the first Mosul Riesling from uh, uh, J.J. Prume uh, Cabinet. That you know, these are all wines that that uh, help me in my journey. And um, you know, are are they the most uh, precious wines I've ever had, or the rarest, or you know? Right. Well, yeah, that no. wasn't the point. They, these right, but these way, are these. I hate yeah, to use the word, but they're wines. like gateway wines or something. That, well, that's, um, you know, for me, they taught me something important that um, propelled me in, in a different direction. And, you know, I, I've, I've said before, I've, I've learned about wine from the bottom up. And I'm forever grateful for my particular uh, wine education and journey because it, it uh, you know, I've, I've, I'm a consumer of all sorts of, of wines, and I, I believe that the everyday bottles that we drink are more important than the, you know, the most precious, rarest, uh, most profound bottles that we drink, because they're the ones that really uh, set the tone for how we think about wine um, even as these profound bottles kind of stretch the context for us. Right. That's a great, you know, that's, that's a great point, And I agree with that. Um, and it, it almost validates a little how silly the question is, but we will move on. Last question is, this is, this is your wheelhouse. And I've been asking it for over four years and our listeners love to tell me the best wine around 15 20 bucks give me a red give me a white with you i don't want to we just talked about it. with you i don't want to get into specific winemakers just and, and if we're repetitive that's fine just give me um regions or wines you, you know what's the great value white the great value red red do we settle on chianti classico no, because those, you know, you have to go up. They're closer to 25 than 15. 
Okay, um, 15 you know, you to might, 20. So you give might me a red talking, Yeah, you might be talking about um, Montepulciano, D'Abruzzo, um, you know, and there's some really good producers there. Um, and, and you might be talking, and I probably be talking about Italian whites as, okay. as, a, as, a, as a whole and field. You mentioned Verdicchio, Suave, a bunch of other things, uh, Edna Bianco. Edna Bianco, Fiano. Those all fit um, in the, the 20 buckish, you know, 18, yes. 20 bucks, right? Okay. Yes. All right. I mean, there's I'm probably, gonna... you know, a lot more, and I, I should I should mention the wines of Portugal, but they're probably a little bit more expensive. Yeah, but they're good value. We, I took the family to Portugal a couple of years ago. We went to Alentejo and Port, yeah. and I mean, it's just awesome. It, it's it's like Italy. The people are friendly. The food is amazing. The wine is amazing. Aesthetically, it's gorgeous. The language is a little more difficult. But. Yeah, I didn't know what was going <laughs> on. And I, you know, I took Spanish in high school, but still, it's Portuguese. All right, yes. Eric, we got to wrap up. I told you now we'd go pretty quickly. Um, let me do a quick. Um, wrap up and then i just want to get a couple of uh cues from you so if you have a question suggestion wine happening or event hit me up at sam at the grape nation.com that's sam at the grape nation.com subscribe to the grape nation podcast on itunes stitcher spotify or wherever you get your pods follow us on facebook at the grape nation on instagram we're at s ben ruby on twitter we're at ben ruby but you can always use the hashtag the Grape Nation to get to us on both. Um, we're trying to build a little community on Clubhouse, so follow us on Clubhouse at, at Ben at Ben Ruby. Um, I forgot to mention this, Eric. We will post your wine list on our social media sites. People love to uh, see and hear, you know, what you recommended, and I think you carry a lot of sway with that, um, Eric. If we want to find you on social media. Where can we go? I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Eric Asimov. Okay, that is your full name. Your column appears in the food section every Wednesday, pretty much, and the wine every school. Wednesday, and it's posted online generally Monday uh, or Tuesday. No, it's usually the Thursday before. Oh, that far ahead. Yeah, okay. so it's almost a week before, but not always. Okay. Okay, so you can get it in paper on Wednesday and about Thursday or Friday online. And the wine school is about once a month. Once a month, yeah. Same thing. Does it does it come out early online or? It's it's the same thing, and uh, you know, in that we we taste uh, a, a different wine every month, and there's a lot of interaction between me and you, readers, you bring, and, and, that's and a you lot bring of fun. in you taste with. Um, Psalms, restaurant no, people. No, no, or... no. <clears throat> that's uh, that's another thing entirely. Oh, right. That's that's what, our, what is that our New York Times wine panel, which has been on right. hiatus for the pandemic. Right, right. Where you taste two, three, four wines, and or even more. Twenty um, is the is the is protocol. Yeah. Um, all right. So wine, we hope wine for... school is three. <laughs> right. That's where I'm confused. So we hope to see that soon. Um, any books any other writing in the works um always something in the works but not ready to talk about it yet all right you'll let me know and then when the right time comes all right eric i want to thank our guest eric asimov from the new york times you've been very insightful and you've helped us navigate 
getting out of this silly pandemic. I appreciate you coming on. Um, for the month of May, we brought back old friends. We had Eric on today. We had Raj Parr on. We had Pascaline Lepeltier. And we had Dustin Hoffman. And, you know, Dustin's opening a new restaurant. Raj moved um, from Santa Barbara to Cambria to a regenerative farm. You know, Pascaline is reopening her restaurant. So it's been great, you know, to talk to everybody about that. And and Eric, I thank you for, you know, anchoring this at the end. I, I thank appreciate you for having you coming me. on. Yes. Um, thank you to our engineer, Amanda, and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. The Grape Nation is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.